Listener supported. WNYC Studios. You wake up in the morning, and then what happens? <laughs> oh, put your headphones on, Peter. Uh, uh. Oh, yeah. Come on, put your arms around. <laughs> I want to hug you and hug you and hug you some more. Right through all these microphone cables. <laughs> Go ahead. I know I'm in the right time, in the right space. Do you feel that? I'm Helga Davis. I have a really good friend who's a bass player who says to me that you don't meet friends, you recognize them. That seems to make sense. I was here at the station, I don't know, a couple years ago, and one of the producers from another show asked me if I wanted to go and hear this concert in the Allen Room up at the Time Warner Center. I said, sure. I'm big on saying yes to things. And so I went to this concert of this musician I'd never heard of before, whose name was Shara Warden. And I sat down, there began this music. And I'd never heard anything like it. I'd never heard anything like these stories. I'd never heard anything like these arrangements, and I felt immediately that I recognized something about this person and about myself. And all I wanted to do after that was meet her, was to figure out how I could meet her. And I didn't know. At intermission, I went outside, and I actually saw someone I knew. (laughs) And he said to me, hi, Helga, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I got invited to this concert. It's amazing. And it turns out that he knew Shara Warden. And he said to me, you know, I'm writing an opera with her. Do you want to be in it? And just like that, just like that, in the studio with me today is Shara Nova, whom I first got to know as Shara Warden. Oh, yeah. Okay. Bad Luck by Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes. They play that in your gym in Detroit? That's right. They play it in the gym. And I knew it was a good day because I had finished my workout and then walked into the locker room. And the speakers in the locker room are a little bit louder. And I was like, oh, Bad Luck is playing. I know I'm in the right time, in the right space. And that they got through the whole thing. Because that breakdown section at the end, when he talks about uh, um, going outside to get the paper. Yes. And he says, I sat down on my living room floor, opened it up. Open it up. Open it up. Open it up. (laughs) (laughs) I saw the president of the United States and then he says but what I know is that he's leaving all the poor folks behind exactly and then he says then he starts to pray right Mm -hmm. (laughs) he says all I have is my God Jesus be Be with with me me. (laughs) (laughs) 
I'm so happy to have sent you that song, that played that song for you, because that's the jam. Are you thinking, are you, are you working on a new record that's going in that direction or something? Or you just like it as, as dance music, as motivation music, as what? I fully admit to finding disco drum samples and downloading them and <laughs> am currently working on a disco track. What's cool is that Detroit House came from disco. So in 2001, I'm listening to a lot of Detroit House that is coming from, uh, it starts disco and then builds into this uh, four on the floor house music. Mm. So it's interesting to me to begin to explore that, especially as a vocalist, because there were a lot of really amazing singers. And and so for me, how does that translate? And they're singers who came out of other traditions. Yes. Right? So they came out of out of church traditions. And you come out of that tradition, too. So it's it's not such a reach to me that you would be attracted to that. You're working on a new record now? I am. A new My Brightest Diamond record? Yes. You've actually changed your name. I did. Do you know the Roberta Flack record? Um, it's called First Takes. You don't know that record? I have to get that for you. What song is that? The song that I'm thinking about is I Told Jesus. I Told Jesus it would be all right if he changed my name. Oh. And when you told me that you were changing your name, I thought about you and that song immediately. It's I Told Jesus it would be all right to change my name. And Jesus replies, child, you know, your mother won't recognize you if you change your name and your brother won't. And it goes through all the list of people who won't know who you are Mm -hmm. anymore if you change your name. And then at the end, it's, it's okay. It'll be all right. If you change my name, if you change my name, change my name, change my name. And so I'm wondering what that experience has been like for you. Well, when I think about the art making that I've been doing in the last several years, I realize that so much of the work has been so uncomfortable. And it's like these walls of our identity that we have constructed for ourselves. The art continues to push against these walls. And as my identity was continually being confronted through the art making these things that I thought were the foundation of my identity started to shift and to soften. And as that began to happen, a whole lot of change occurred. Um, One being that I separated from my husband. We were married for 17 years and then went ahead and decided to legally separate, divorce. And, you know, I grew up in a family where divorce was never spoken in my home. And so idea after idea after idea of what I thought my life was going to be suddenly was shifting and becoming something else. And 
it does feel like a lot of little deaths, like the little deaths of mm. things that you hold. And then you come into a point that you can't hold on to something that's a part of your identity construct. And you have to open up to a new place. Who named you? Did you name yourself? That's funny. I was praying. I was <laughs> I was speaking to my, my – I have a dear friend who's a barber, my barber downstairs uh, in my building, and he's also a Comet scholar. And I would go to him and I would say, you know, Pierre – do you have any sense for me? And he said, you are every name. Mm. You are so many names that you cannot, I, you cannot contain all that you are in a name. And that gave me a lot of relief. <laughs> and my dear friends in Detroit, I had asked them, Andrew and Kinga, and they said, well, for Shara, we're going to open a science book. They got a science book, and they opened it, and they saw the word Nova. And when they first told me, I thought, oh, I like that. I like that for a lot of different reasons. But then it wasn't for several months that I realized in Latin it means new. And even though my parents aren't Jewish, but my name, Shara, in Hebrew, Shara, is like... Um, it's like a, a singing word, hmm. and so a, a word of song. And so I thought the, this meaning of new song, okay, that feels like me. It feels like there have been so many deaths of what I thought my life was going to be. And now I am in a period of, of newness that... I had no vision for my life beyond what has happened now. There's not a model for me in my family that has preceded me in certain ways. I mean, I absolutely have my heroes in my family, but the the structures of their life and a, lo a lot of the things I've had to release from my family um, – so I think that's been interesting. You know, a lot of people asked, well, why didn't you go back to your family name? But it felt like that was so much of what I needed to let go of were, were these structures of form. And strangely, I'm closer to my family now in these last several months, and I feel more intimacy and more appreciation for them in the fact that I have claimed myself, I have named myself, I'm married to myself in a way that um, I thought that it would feel more like losing them, but in a way I feel, yeah, more intimacy and more gratitude for what my family has given me. And at the same time, not carrying on with some of the same uh, pieces of luggage. <laughs> <laughs> it's so interesting the the family piece in the in the naming of oneself. 
Do you think that that being uncomfortable is important to some part of this process, this idea of little deaths? Is it important to your creative process? It is crucial. Mm -hmm. It's absolutely crucial to be uncomfortable. And... I think that this time of, you can call it a midlife crisis, <laughs> you can call it transformation, I can pinpoint it to how uncomfortable I was in working on the Matthew Barney film, River Fundament. I would be, you know, side stage or, you know, off screen, and I would be weeping. Hmm. I couldn't sleep at night. I was wrestling with that work and asking questions and i think the ability to the ability of art to to challenge us to cause us to take a little step back from our beliefs our ideas about things and that we are are forced to look at them and i'm so grateful for that and I don't want to do things in which I'm not uncomfortable because then that means I'm not growing. If I'm in a musical situation where I can do everything and it's easy, then that can be fun sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also not going to make me a better musician. Mm -hmm. And it's also maybe letting me, myself get off without a risking vulnerability. And vulnerability is, I think, one thing that I, we, I, am so afraid of. We want control or perceived control. And I think art making it's like subjecting yourself to this admission that you don't have control. So I think that many or maybe all of my decisions are motivated by challenge. And in a way where I find that I don't want, where my vulnerability is, is the exact place that I need to lean in. To lean into. Yeah. So that's my that's my work. That's what motivates a lot of the decisions. Yes, I want to work with interesting people and interesting projects and things that I find stimulating on on multiple levels. Um, you know, I love that good people, good project, good money. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and you got to have two out of three mm -hmm. to say yes. Mm -hmm. Or all three. <laughs> I mean, but I think it's important to do things sometimes where money is not a factor. Because money doesn't define everything. It doesn't? I know. It doesn't. Oh, no. But I would also say, in terms of being uncomfortable, that writing the opera U.S. We All, which I wrote for you, my dear Helga, um... That was the most uncomfortable thing that I had done thus far. I was, you know, working 16 hours a day, had a three-year-old, and tucking him in, you know, making lunch, getting him to bed, and then would go straight back to work. 
and wrote an opera in three months. And it was, I mean, I was uh, so ghost-like in many ways by the end of it. But what that did was it kind of like turned the heat up on everything Mm -hmm. so that a lot of things had to be revealed and exposed because the pressure was so high. And then as a result of that, you know, a lot of these uh, changes have come about. But I think it's it's through that art-making process that you lay yourself bare and then you are open to what changes you need to maybe begin to make in your life. Mm-hmm. You're in Detroit. Are you still enjoying that city? It's interesting The radio feels like home Hmm. because I lived about an hour west of Detroit when I was a teenager. I lived there for four years, and then we moved to Iowa. And then I ended up moving back for my senior year of high school. So in total, I was in Michigan for five years, and the radio was the same. I still got the Detroit radio stations. And being there, it's so comfortable because I'm like, oh, I remember this Denise Williams song. And I remember this Teddy Pendergrass song, you know, from my childhood. And it feels good to come home to that. And I don't feel like the radio is, it's very particular, very localized stations. And that feels good to be home and to be influenced by that musically. It's helping me integrate myself in a way because I grew up listening to soul music on the radio and then was singing Bach and Samuel Barber in school. And so finding, you know, I think being in that environment again is helping me integrate these loves of mine and and finding out my own kind of working through what my own vehicle of expressing that integrating all these different things that I love and so Detroit as a city right now offers you space you have a son a young son you have a garden for him do you have a studio there also that you work I do have a separate studio. I show up to the office. I'm there every day, and I go to work, and I go home, feed my son, and read stories to him and tuck him to bed, (laughs) you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of artists. There are a lot of people who have moved to Detroit from other places. How is it going in terms of making community there. One of the things that's so fascinating to me is there's a, an unpolished quality to a lot of the spaces where music is happening. And sometimes that can be really, really frustrating when, you know, a, an electrical snake doesn't work, you know, and you're trying to plug in a microphone and it doesn't work, or there's not good heating in my studio building. And so by the end of the day, my hands are cold. Um, and I can't really play guitar very well. But 
there are other moments that happen in these uh, unpolished uh, concert environments where it just, the sensibility is like, it feels that because you don't have all the overhead of space, you're a little bit more flexible in terms of experimentation. And I like the grittiness and the immediacy of the idea of, oh, okay, if I come up with a brand new set that has nothing to do with my other work, I can I can try it out. And if it doesn't fly in Detroit and people aren't dancing and enjoying themselves, then I'm going to go back <laughs> and go to the drawing board again. <laughs> I moved to Detroit to be with people that were not in the art world. Part of why I was propelled to leave is that I felt that my work was insular and that I didn't want to be in a place where I wasn't more actively rubbing shoulders with a construction worker or with someone in the factory or with someone in a different industry than I was doing. And my view had become quite narrow in a way. Do you feel that part of your creative process also, like do you every five years or three years destroy everything? Destroy is a big word, but feel like you need to break out of whatever it is you've been doing and go do something else completely different that forces you to start over again, that forces you to look at yourself and that allows you to imagine yourself all over again. Every record that I've made has been related to space in a unique way. So it's almost like if I was making the same music in the same house in Brooklyn, you know, then I needed to move. I think also I have, uh, I love making classical music. I love the detail of it. I love working with people, with instrumentalists. I love that engagement. And then at the same time, I am a punk. And so I need the immediacy of playing guitar really fast and loud and badly and screaming. And you don't really, I haven't figured out how to do that with orchestra. <laughs> I'm sure it can be done. But the physicality of rock is really a relief to me. And so I find that I'm constantly going back and forth between my need to do something that is, I would say, less a social conversation and more about maybe an internal question that I have about music. And then I also desire to engage with people. And I feel like pop music is more of a conversation between me and an audience. It's more, I mean, of course, classical music is the same, but it, the process of classical music, I think, can be a little more internal for me. Tell me if you think this is true. I have a friend who's a producer who said this to me. And we were talking about relationships, about intimate relationships. And she said, you know what the problem with you artists is? You're always in love. You're, all, you're in love 
with your work and then you get on a plane and you go somewhere and you're in love with that new place and then you you meet someone who inspires you and you're in love <laughs> and it sounded so dirty when she, when she said it <laughs> but i was thinking about it in terms of of how i experience you um as being really passionate about your work i'm trying to to suss out this feeling of where you are now with a new name working on a new record i think about my personality like there's part of it where i'm like an astronaut and i'm constantly asking these questions or finding the edge of my own universe and needing to extend farther or say with a past experiment with music i learned something or i came to see something about the work that is dissatisfying or that i have a question about or something in the work that didn't get resolved and then the next piece i want to okay well if i change these parameters then what happens and i guess it's not that you're really looking for perfection because that doesn't exist but it's more like moving pieces of a puzzle around and just seeing what the result is but still solving something yeah so a lot of the my brightest diamond albums have been about space the first albums were you know drums and strings and then the next i said okay i'm going to add woodwinds and marimba and a little bit of harp i'm going to go earth and sky here and then the third one i said i'm so tired of everybody being the violinist is complaining and the drums never get to play loud so forget it forget electric guitar third one we're going concert hall and going more acoustic and see what happens to make a chamber album then i said okay we did that now was the loudest thing i can do marching bands so then i wanted to break out of the concert hall and go into three dimensional space and a marching band is surround sound so i started playing with that and in a way that experiment is continuing with my collaboration with so percussion it's like okay well now what happens if i just strip down to the voice and drums and and the next my brightest diamond album is a, is a continuation of that too of like well what's historically what what music has been made with beats and drums early rap was just beats and vocals and so digging into okay well i'm in detroit what's that history and what music has influenced me and then how do i um filter that through my own life are your songs for this record coming up are they about your new name are they about what are they about well it's a funny thing i started i 30 songs and 
a lot of them, I just sound like a teenager who's like, I'm going to do everything my way, <laughs> is very rebellious and very uh, annoying <laughs> in that way that a teenager is just like obnoxious about like, it's me and I'm coming out and I'm going to do things what, you know, my way. And thankfully, that hard drive fell on the ground and wiped out. <laughs> so about a month ago, I have had to start over. And mm. I think – and so there were these songs that were very teenagerly and and really that's it. so much of how I feel is like uh, – a child again in in a lot of ways but then a lot as i was looking at the world and just speaking to the time that we're in a lot of the music also had a lot of social consciousness in it and finding my perspective and how i wanted to speak to social justice um will you talk about that a little bit Yes, one of the songs that will stick around is called Mama So Mad, and it is based on Nina Simone's Mississippi Goddamn, and I kind of took a little bit of her melody and um, and then applied that to my feelings of uh, outrage over the Flint water crisis and just feeling that as a mother, you know, like my son drinking water that's full of lead and me having no control over that and that people n knowingly or for what in how, however that right. uh, happened but it was from some negligence and and the injustice of that on so 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 many families and so many people and that being very very close to home and the vulnerability of that that we trust that the water that's coming out of our faucet is something that we can drink and the song ends with every sun becomes our own or else will be undone every sun becomes our own it's true for all or no one so it's like you know i think sometimes you feel like oh I should be only speaking about myself. What, you know, is the world, do we perceive the world through only our own perception or do we have a right to speak to someone else's reality, right? This didn't happen to me. It didn't happen to my son. However, someone said to me, if there's a grain of rice, we are to share that last grain of rice and to be in a position of power in any capacity um, we have to recognize that we have something to share and for me in having a son and identifying with those women i thought okay i i want to speak to this through this uh song mama so mad hmm. where do you think motherhood fits into all of this. Does motherhood give you a kind of skill or um, openness? 
Well, astronauts really love having a landing pad. (laughs) (laughs) And I love the, the... I love the experience in this life. I'm so grateful for the experience of having my son. When I look at him, it's like this radiant beam that is shooting out of my being toward him. And it doesn't matter if he's throwing a shoe at me. It doesn't matter if he's telling me I'm the meanest mommy in the whole world because I won't go buy him a new Lego set. It's just, it's the most incredible experience to be a mother and to think of we in a way that I didn't before having a child. And at the same time, it's another kind of fire. And it puts uh, this the sense of responsibility and the adultness of being a mom is challenging, mm-hmm. but it's a gift. And but it isn't easy. Every parent knows that as well. There are those days when you question, okay, well, I'm not able to do those sixteen-hour days in the same way that I did before. And is my work suffering because of that? Well, soften that. You know, um, I've had to soften the fact that I may not be able to get as many projects done or as much work. What's challenged me is that my identity, even as being a musician, is being confronted. Because we were all musical, I had value as a human being in my family in, in church, in my communities, because I could get up and sing, and they'd pass the offering plate. <laughs> mm-hmm. Or people knew me because I could sing those high notes, you know, or whatever. And, and I created an identity structure for myself. And so being a mother confronts even that. My identity is now in also a a different role or a different capacity. I think it's like toggling always between a need for home, a need for connection, a need for community and family, and at the same time needing to go away and needing to go far and needing to be isolated for long periods of time in order to do this work and needing to feel like you belong and that it matters when you get off the plane, who you're coming home to Mm -hmm. and creating that root system for yourself. I saw a African priest and he was speaking to me about in his tradition, he would put all the portraits of his family in a corner. That's the ancestor's corner. And he encouraged me to do that. And he said, do you cook your grandmother's food? I said, no, <laughs> not in the habit of making meatloaf and green jello. <laughs> Fried chicken and mashed potatoes with extra <laughs> sour cream. <gasps> Ooh. You know, my, Ooh. my grandparents are from the South. Ooh. Fried okra and collard greens. Right. But I did start making my grandparents food. You know, he said, you need to get in touch with your ancestors. You may have moved all over this country, but... You still come from 
a family. And even though my family doesn't know where we came from, we are an American amalgamation of so many things. And we've been here, we forgot where we are from. And I think a lot of Americans can relate to that. People, where are you from? I don't know. I'm I am a, an amalgamation of many different states and many different cultures because that's the reality of my I lived in New Orleans as a, you know a, a little kid. Mm-hmm. So Mardi Gras was part of my family culture for several years, you know. Um I have a family with Trinidadians that are, you know, we have a blended cultural family. So, you know, this thing of, well, who are you? Where are you from? Where are your people from? And I'm embracing that because the new world, the next, the next phase of global citizenship is one where culture is going to continue to blend. And I think we have fear of that. We have fear of those changes. But... I'm recently just embracing that in some way I also reflect that blend of culture and may it continue to happen. I think too we're we're afraid of losing something that feels essential to who we are. You know, I I can feel in the stories of some of the elders I come into contact with how important it is to them that I not forget that whatever it is I'm doing, I'm doing it because they did something too. Mm. And and I understand that that feeling as well. I think part of what's so important about these conversations Shara, is that by sitting across from one another, we also give people permission to explore, to feel, to be, to question at their edges. And it's really great and interesting to talk to you at a moment when you came up against an edge in your life and that you made this choice about a name about how to change your about changing your family structure about moving away from and moving toward something that feels more true for you i think it's it's interesting making a decision in this day and age and you have to release oh well people are going to think this is a publicity or blah 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 whatever people think but knowing for myself that this is a very personal choice and it's a little unusual i guess for someone kind of mid career to suddenly you know, change your name, but it feels like something I really needed to do, even if it didn't make sense. Mm -hmm. Well, 
even if it doesn't make sense, it does for other people. For, there we go <laughs> <laughs> for other people. But it it does feel like it's in line with, as you said, all the rest of your creative conversation, which needed to not be held so tightly. Mm-hmm. I will really look forward to speaking with you again once you get this record made and uh, and being able to talk to you about it and about where you are then, right? Yes. Everyone has advised me, you know, right at this time of transition. Well, it's like in one month I'm thinking completely different things than I was thinking a month previous. So it's a very strange time to write a record because it's like I'm in a, almost like a rapid, rapid movement. So songs are like photographs where they stick you in time and it's difficult to commit to a point of view. Hmm. Because in a month from now, I will have a different idea about a lot of things. Um, so, but I, I'm trying to give myself the permission to just take a photograph in a song. Yeah. Come back and talk to me. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Sharonova. New name, new path. I'm Helga. This is also a new path for me, these conversations. And I'm really enjoying sharing them with you. So I'd like to hear from you. You can always email me at helga at wqxr.org or follow me on Facebook. And so I'm curious whether or not something in today's conversation resonated with you, if it inspired you in some way, if it inspired even your creativity, do reach out and let me know. This episode of Helga was produced by Julia Alsop and executive producer Alex Ambrose with help from Curtis McDonald and original music by Alex Overington. Special thanks to Cindy Kim, Lorraine Maddox, Michael L. Sesser, Jacqueline Sincotta, and John Chow.